Good morning again. I'd encourage you now to take your Bibles with me and turn to the 41st chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, this morning we're going to continue our series uh, here in the middle portion of Isaiah entitled, Behold Your God. As we continue through this year and through this semester together, I think it's important to remember that one of the very best things that we can do in any time of life is to fix our focus by God's grace on God's character and on God's continuing and promised work for us as his people. So Isaiah chapter 41 this morning, and we're going to be looking together today at verses 17 through 20. Isaiah 41, 17 through 20. Listen now as I read God's word for you and for me. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Let's pray together once again. Heavenly Father, as we come now again to your word in the context of this worship service, we are so thankful, God, that you have not left us alone in this world. You have given us your truth. You have given us your spirit. Lord, in your goodness, you even gave us your own Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at your word together that by your spirit you would illuminate the wonder of your own character, the finality and the power, the beauty of your work. You would help us to see Jesus. In light of that, that we would be changed, encouraged, transformed, built up, redeemed as your people. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you know that I love listening to music. Every year, my mother-in-law gifts me with enough money to cover a full year of Spotify Premium, and I am deeply thankful for that gift. Um, I won't share with you my year in review because it would be slightly embarrassing and probably boring to many of you, but... As I've listened to music, one of the things that I find very often in, in music itself is that music from those who are perhaps apart from Christ or with little interest in the work of Jesus often do a beautiful job reflecting or showcasing our human condition. I want you to listen to just one example of that from a very popular song. In fact, it's been streamed 1.7 billion times on Spotify. I checked. It's the song Shallow by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga from the movie A Star is Born. 
Here's what that song says. Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world, or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? It continues, tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? That song touches on realities that we all feel. There's a sense in which our hearts, our minds, even our bodies, in the context of our relationships, and sometimes when we're just thinking to ourselves, we know that we're needy. We are constantly longing, looking, searching, hoping for something more, something better, and something deep down that we know is actually fully necessary for us. This morning, as we work our way through Isaiah 41, we're really going to take some time to look at themes like disappointment and emptiness and desperation. But even right here at the beginning, I I want you to have hope because we're going to meet those themes with, with other ideas, beautiful, redemptive ideas like contentment and satisfaction and faithfulness. As we look at these four verses together, our outline this morning is really pretty simple, but I hope that it can be an encouragement to us as we keep our, our, our pace together. First, we're going to look at our problem. We're introduced to that in verse 17. Second, God's promise. He says something and he means it. Third, God's provision. What God does for these people and what really God promises to do for all of his people. And finally, God's power. That's really the purpose of what's happening here in Isaiah 41. Before we look at those four different ideas together, though, let me, let me set a little context for us here. You'll know that we're in this middle section of Isaiah, where Isaiah the prophet is, is shifting his focus from the disobedience of God's people and all that they should expect from God as a result of their disobedience, the discipline that they will experience, specifically through the hands of of the Babylonian captivity. But now, in Isaiah 40, really through the end of the book, God is doing something else. He is promising through this same prophet a new, a better, a glorious work of salvation. In Isaiah 41, Isaiah is describing for the people of God what God's activity will be like and what their lives will be like after their exile in Babylon. So here in Isaiah 41, we have promises concerning the future. These promises apply obviously to the people of Israel, but we need to understand that these promises have a much broader and a much larger application. One of the other important points for us to understand is that here in Isaiah 41 specifically, This is a courtroom scene. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that that Steve helped us understand that at the end of chapter 40, the people of God are consistently or constantly bringing their complaints. They're constantly bringing their, their, their discomfort before the Lord. If you look at the beginning of chapter 41, what does God say? 
Listen to me in silence. God, in essence, is saying, you've had your chance to to bring your concerns before me. I understand. I have heard you. Now hear from me. Listen to my side. Understand who I am and what I will do in response. That really gives us another important piece of information. You probably noticed that as I read, it's not Isaiah who's talking in Isaiah 41. It's God himself. Look back at the pronouns just quickly. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open. I will make. I will put. I will set. God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel and eternity, is speaking in the first person here. He's in full charge of what is being said. Finally, I think it's important, maybe this is a little more of a side note, but there's a lot of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. In most of your Bibles, this isn't written in paragraph form. It's broken up. That's because the original language is actually, it is poetry. And as a result, there's parallelism in every single verse. Look at it again in verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. This whole passage is organized like that, where one clause is really going to support the one before it. So as we work our way through these verses, don't be surprised if you see the same ideas come up on a regular basis. That's just the way it's written, to to reinforce our thoughts and to really gain our attention. With all this in mind, let's now kind of focus our attention on our problem, our problem as it's presented here in Isaiah 41. It's presented to us in verse 17 as we meet a group of people who are poor and needy and seeking water. So here in this passage, God sees a group of people who are wandering physically, mentally, emotionally, and yes, spiritually through the desert. These people are described as poor and needy such that they are actually dying of thirst in a barren wilderness. It says they're seeking, they're longing, they're hoping, but, but there is no water. Their tongue, it, it is parched with thirst. It's, it's as if it was dried to the roof of their mouth. It's important for us to understand that, that the problem here goes well beyond the physical needs of the people. It's perhaps hard for us in our context to imagine what it would be like to actually be in the desert, to be in the wilderness, to be in a place where there is no water, and to be thirsting to death. On the journey from Babylon back to the promised land, this is a physical reality that the people may have experienced. As they wandered on foot back to their homeland, they perhaps would have known a place without any water, a place without any provision, a place that wouldn't even meet their basic needs. And where does that leave them, and many times us? Alone and afraid. I think it's important for us to understand that that's the kind of people God is talking to here in Isaiah 41. People who are alone. People who are afraid. 
people who are desperate. A group of people who don't even have the basic necessities of life and people who have no way of providing for themselves. I'm going to save a lot of the application for the end of our time together. But if this doesn't begin to resonate with your heart and your soul, I would encourage you to maybe take an even deeper look at your life. I would encourage all of us to really think about who we are, what we've experienced, where we are, and the themes that so often describe our daily existence. Some of you in this room may have seen a 2002 film by Roman Polanski called The Pianist. It starred Adrian Brody in the role of Vladislav Spielmann. I'm sure I'm butchering that name. He was a Jewish pianist in Poland who survived the entire German occupation in the Warsaw Ghetto by basically going from one hole to another hole to another closet to another house to another room Adrian Brody committed himself to this role. At the beginning of the film, he is a healthy, well-kept, attractive, handsome, articulate man. As we go through the movie, he's dirty. He's gaunt. His hair is overgrown. He's desperate. He's dying of hunger. Slowly but surely. There's a pivotal scene where he goes into a bombed out house and with a drawn arm and a drawn face, he begins to rummage through the kitchen. And he finds this huge can of pickles. But it's sealed. And and he can't open it. He can't get into it. I think it's important for us to feel, to, to try to put ourselves into this place, to, to, to really experience that kind of desperation here in Isaiah 41. What we so desperately need, we cannot get at. We cannot get to. It's as if we, we, we cannot access what is necessary even for daily continued life. Again, this encourages us to be honest about our condition, our desperation, our fear, our poverty, and our need. We need to acknowledge alongside the Israelites here in Isaiah 41 that we, in body and in soul, are thirsty people. But what does does God do with these kinds of people? He moves toward them. That brings us to our second point, God's promise. What does God promise at the end of verse 17? Well, first, he promises to answer their prayers. Tied up in this idea of seeking at the beginning of verse six or 17 is actually that the people of God are, are crying out in the midst of their need, in the midst of their desperation, in the midst of their thirst, and God meets them. God hears them. God promises to meet their need. He hears the complaints of a pitiful, pitiful, dizzied people. 
Now, I think it's important. We often gloss over these kinds of details, even in, in the context of church, particularly in the context of our Bible reading. What does God do when He promises to answer them? He specifically includes His covenant name. Look again at verse 17. I, the Lord, will answer. Why does He do that? Because he wants these people, he wants these people to remember who he actually is. He he is the God who will not turn his back on his people. He is the God who will not fail to keep his promises. He is the God who will always be present, who will always be active for his own glory and for their eternal good. I, the Lord, will answer them. But God also promises his constant presence. At the end of verse 17, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. We've already touched this on, uh, this, on this idea, but realize that in our lives, in our daily existence, in the outworking of covenant history, the God of eternity is not one who parachutes in and then retreats to a safe distance when we don't need him anymore. God walks with us continually. He was with them as they left Egypt. He was with them as they entered the promised land. He was with them in the midst of their disobedience. He went with them into captivity. He is with them on the way back, and he will be with them all the way home. He will not forsake his people. In the context of the work that I do alongside our youth and families, I've had the opportunity to attend RYM summer conferences many, many, many times now. It's a wonderful blessing, not necessarily because of the place, but because of the people. Um, Those of you who've been will appreciate what I just said. In recent years, RYM has actually brought someone on staff named Joe Deegan, He serves and really leads their their music and worship ministry and actually writes a lot of really beautiful songs. One that we sing from time to time as as a youth group is More Than We Know. I want you to listen to, to what he says. The Lord loves his children more than we know. And all that he does, he does to show he'll never forsake us. He'll never let go. The Lord loves his children more than we know. This morning, as we consider our need, as we consider our desperation, as we consider the realities of being physically, spiritually thirsty, we can take promises, or excuse me, we can take heart in the promises of God. We can take encouragement in the presence of God. He hears us. He knows our condition. He is present, and He will do us good. Remember, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is one of the overwhelming refrains in all of Scripture. And what God says, God means. Third, we see in a very practical way God's provision for His people. This is in verses 18 and 19. 
If you look back, obviously the people of God, they they are wandering through the wilderness. They are wandering through the desert. They are on their way home, but they are desperate. They are poor. They are needy. They are thirsty. They need what? They need water. God says, "I, I will answer you. I will not forsake you. But then we see God actually begin to work in verse 18. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Here in verse 18, we see that God's work is a necessary provision. A necessary provision. It is something that the people actually need. Again, God understands the condition. God understands what is lacking. God understands how to address the problem. And what does he do? He provides water to people who had none. But there's more than just a necessary provision here. It is also a miraculous provision. Why would I say that? Well, where are the people? How is this terrain actually described in this passage? It says that they are bare heights, valleys, wilderness, and a dry land. But what does God do? He provides rivers, fountains, a pool of water, and springs of water. Out of nowhere, God brings what is necessary and yet unexpected. He brings his people exactly what they need by his power, by his strength, even in the midst of their most desperate circumstances and situations. I think it's very important for us to understand as God's people that God has created our world with a great deal of order. But God is free to break that natural order for the glory of his own name and for the good of his people. And that's exactly what he promises to do here. He enters into the desperation. He enters into the wilderness, into the desert, into the dry land, and gives his people a necessary and miraculous provision. In verse 19, though, we see two additional things about this provision. It's an excessive provision. Why would I say that? Well, look at verse 19. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, and then we just get this long list of different kinds of trees. The people are thirsty. Why the trees? Because God is not just meeting the bare minimum need of his people. He is being excessive in his grace. What he gives them is not just a bubbling brook. He gives his people a literal oasis. There are trees, abundant trees. One commentator I read said that it's important that we see that these are not the kinds of trees that bear fruit. They are the kinds of trees that provide shade, shelter. God is planting for his people a place of rest, providing for his people more than they ever could have expected and more than in their own estimation than they needed. Lastly, we see here a perfect kind of provision. I don't want to make too much of this, but how many trees are listed in verse 19? Seven. If you go through Scripture, that matters. When God starts doing things in sevens, He is giving us a picture of perfection. 
He's saying, listen, what I have just done, what I have just created, seven days of creation, this is everything you need. This is the perfect picture. That's the way that we're supposed to be left with verse 19. That God has given his people, through miraculous means, everything that they needed, everything that they really could have ever wanted, and everything that is necessary for their good. I want you to hear, (laughs) I wish we still wrote this way. This is a quote from Kyle and Dalich in their commentary on Isaiah. Reflecting on verse 19, they say this, It is not merely a scanty vegetation that springs up, but a corresponding manifold fullness of stately, fragrant, and shady trees, so that that step, whether neither foot nor eye could find a resting place, is changed as by a stroke of magic into a large, dense, well-watered forest and shines with sevenfold glory. That's what God is doing. A shining, abundant, well-watered, comfortable space for a desperate people. We could go around the room this morning, and I could ask you what the greatest film in Disney history is. And if you don't say Beauty and the Beast, you would be wrong. And I don't mean the live-action one where they, no, stop, Disney, stop. I mean the good old-fashioned animated version. As we think about God's provision here in Isaiah 41, I want you to think about the scene where Belle is desperate in that castle. She is needy, she is homeless, she is hopeless, she is terrified, and she's hungry. And what happens? It's after dinner. She says, well, maybe I could eat. And then Lumiere, that's the candlestick, he says, oh, you just wait. Be our guest. And they lay out the most lavish meal she could have ever imagined. That's a picture of Isaiah 41. I'm needy, I'm afraid. I'm desperate. Wham. God's provision. Necessary, miraculous, excessive, perfect. Think of Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul says, Now to him who is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here in Isaiah 41, God is actually exceeding the expectations of His people. He delights in doing so. And He continues to do so. Fourth point this morning is God's power. God's power. This comes to us in verse 20. We get both the display of God's power and then our response to God's power. It says in verse 20, God does all of this in the wilderness. He brings the water. He plants the forest so that they, the people, those who are needy, those who are poor, those who are desperate, those who are thirsty, so that they may see and know. 
again, this is our parallelism, that they may consider and understand. God really wants us to get something. What is it? That the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. What do we take from verse 20? That the provision here of what we actually need is God's work alone. He is solely responsible for the good things that are enjoyed by His people. It's actually the covenant name of God, again, in verse 20, that underlines His commitment and presence. I, the Lord, will answer them. And here in verse 20, the hand of the Lord has done this. I love that shift from the future to the past. Again, what God says, God means. What God promises, God does. We also have our response to God's power. What what are we supposed to do with this? (laughs) We're meant to watch God's work. Understand God's character. Revel in awe at what God is doing. We are supposed to be the people who see and know and consider and understand that He is God and we are not. That He is capable of doing all that we need for our good. As I reflected on this idea, I talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning with our high schoolers. (laughs) I kept coming back to the idea of a, a group project. If you think about your education, somewhere in middle school, high school, college, maybe grad school, there was always the group project. There are two kinds of people with a group project. The one kind of person hates it because they know they're going to be the one doing all the work. The other kind of person loves it because they know somebody else is going to be the one doing all the work. Salvation is not a group project. God does not need our help, nor does he ask for it. And we couldn't give it even if we wanted to. God says, I see you in your need, in your desperation, in your fear, in your thirst. I will answer. I will come. I will do exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine. And you get to sit and wonder and worship. I'm going to be honest with you. I've been a little dishonest with you. This is not a four-point sermon. It's a five-point sermon. It's a secret bonus point right here at the end. What does this actually mean for us? We are not in Babylon, nor are we returning from Babylon, nor are we going to the promised land. Really? Here's a really important thing for all of us to keep in mind when we read Scripture. Ask yourself this question. Where have I heard this before? Or maybe because you're reading Scripture. Where have I seen this before? As we really think about the bigger picture of Isaiah 41, I I want you to recognize that What God is doing here actually points us to the past. Multiple places in the past. 
Have we seen God work like this before? The answer is yes. Twice in the wilderness, as the people of God left Egypt, the hardship, the slavery of Egypt, as they were in the wilderness, in the dry land, in the place of thirst, what did God do? He provided rivers of water from the rock. Twice. We've seen God do this before. But have we seen God do this even earlier than that? Yes. Genesis chapter 2 is this, is this beautiful interpretation of God's creative work. And as God introduces us to the Garden of Eden, do you remember how he describes it? There's water on every edge, four different rivers, and lush vegetation. So, what is God doing here in Isaiah 41? He is pointing us backward. He's saying, hey, do you remember what I'm really like? Do you remember what I'm actually capable of? Do you remember how faithful I am and how I actually rejoice in doing my people good? Do you remember how unexpected that was? How necessary, how miraculous, how profound that was? Understand that I'm going to do that again. But it's more than just pointing us to the past. Isaiah 41 also points us directly to Jesus. Why would I say that? John chapter 4. I talked about this recently in another sermon. Jesus meets a desperate, thirsty woman where? At a well. And what does he say to that woman? I am the living water. So it's not just that Isaiah 41 is is pointing us to some physical provision. It's pointing us to the greater spiritual soul provision that God will give us in Jesus Christ. And for us now, that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Stay with me. Because there's an even bigger picture here. Eden, the wilderness, Samaria in the person of Jesus. How does the Bible end? The book of Revelation, John is given multiple visions of the end of time. Over and over and over again. A seminary professor used to tell us it's like an instant replay on a football game. You just get to see it from every angle. Now let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again how awesome this is going to be. What's the very last picture we get? Do you know? It's in Revelation 22. Just before this final interaction between John and Jesus and the come Lord Jesus, the very last picture is a river flowing out of the throne of God, and on either side of it is the tree of life. Isaiah 41 is recapping for us the entirety of redemptive history. It is pointing us not just to what God is going to do in this wilderness on the other side of Babylon, but what God has actually committed himself to for all of human history, for all of his covenant people. 
God is saying to each and every one of us, I see you, I hear you, I know your situation, I know that you are desperate, I know that you are needy, I know that you are thirsty. I haven't gone anywhere and I have not changed my mind. And what I am about to do through the finished work of Jesus Christ will absolutely blow you away. I am prepared to fully restore all that you need for time and eternity. As we think about this, I I want us to understand something. Because we can look at verse 20 and we can say, well, wait a minute. God just says that the big point of Him doing what He's going to do here is so that people know more about Him. As Presbyterians, as Reformed folks, we love talking about the glory of God, and rightfully so, because God loves talking about His own glory. But here's what we need to understand. And I need you to get this deep down in your bones. The glory of God and the eternal good of God's people cannot be separated. You, you can't take those things apart. Because what happens? God promotes His glory. He says, look, understand, know, see, my power is on display. I am unlike anyone and anything else that you know. But what do the people enjoy? Rivers in the desert. Their thirst is quenched. Their needs are met and they are satisfied in the glorious provision of God. As we bring things to a close this morning, I actually want to go back to that song we started with, Shallow. Let me just ask you these questions honestly this time. Are you happy in this modern world? Really? We have a lot of cool stuff. Are your needs being met by it? Are mine? Do you need more? Is there something or perhaps someone else you're searching for? Are you tired of trying to fill that void? Isn't it hard keeping up a good face and grinding all the time? If you find yourself in that place this morning, I've got some really good news for you. God's got you right where He wants you. Because He delights in providing everything we need when we are truly desperate. This morning, I want to encourage each and every one of us to look not necessarily to the good things that God provides, but to the good Savior that God has provided. To the good promises that God has given. The recognition that in the same way God promises to do all that is necessary, all that is right, all that is good, all that is needed for these people, He has promised the same to us. And what God says, God means. And what God means, God does.
forever and ever for all that are his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you have given us the opportunity this morning to see your promises, to reflect on your truth, to know your character. Thank you that you are enough. Thank you that you are abundant. Thank you that in seeing us, in seeing our need, in seeing our poverty, in, in seeing our, our sadness, our fear, our desperation, you don't turn away. You don't walk away. You don't tell us to, to try harder and do better. You come. You give. You provide and you make new. Help us to lean upon that redemptive work even as we lean upon Jesus this morning. We pray this in His name. Amen.